morning, you guys. Uh, we are excited that you guys are here. Uh, if you guys will turn to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, that's where we are going to camp out this morning. Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, as you guys turn there, let me remind you guys that we're going to be doing lunch afterwards. So if you guys don't have lunch plans, we'd love for you all to hang with us. It's on us. We're going to have hot dog sandwiches. Love for you all to stay with us. Also, as you guys turn there, I have a few, uh, a few special visitors this morning. Uh, they don't know I'm about to do this, but uh, my own blessed parents who gave me life are here this morning. Uh, my mom and my dad. So uh, you guys want to raise your hands? There you are. Yes. So all the embarrassing stories I've told about them, don't mention those this morning, all right? Uh, there's not a time nor a place for that, all right? Uh, and also, you guys may not realize this, but I grew up in Dallas, Texas, hence my love affair with the Dallas Cowboys. Halfway through college, my parents went to the dark side, not to Austin, but they moved to Houston. Um, and defected and have become Houston Texans fans. So, a little later today, our whole family is going to be split in our rooting interest uh, later today for a little football afternoon time. So, you can pray for our family, all right? Um, uh, another special guest for you guys, if y'all don't know her, one of our uh, redheads on our college staff, Sarah Malone, is here today. She's visiting us from the Anderson campus. Sarah, why don't you stand up for us? Let us see who you are. There's Sarah. Sarah is our director of all things college uh, women ministry related. And so for you girls, she's a great person just to know. She's here to serve and love on you guys. And so not you guys, uh, literally, but you girls. So uh, she's here for y'all when she wants to be able to meet you guys. And so she'll be around here at lunch. Just wants to get a chance to hang out with you guys. So Hebrews chapter two this morning, uh, we're going to be uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground verses five to 18 this morning. But in particular, we're going to start out verses five to 11. So if you'll follow along with me, Hebrews chapter two, verses five to 11. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands, and have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. You pray with me. Father God, we thank you immensely for your son, Jesus Christ. And I thank you for a book like Hebrews that week in and week out centers us on his identity, his activity, and what he's about. And Father, I pray this morning as we look even closer this morning at a whole new aspect of what the writer of Hebrews will say to us about him, Lord, I pray that you would give us teachable hearts. I pray this morning even as I speak, Lord, I pray that you give me your words and that you would allow this time to be whatever it is that you see fit and that you would give me just a sense to, to respond wherever you would like to lead this morning. Pray for us this morning that you give us hearts that are open to you, hearts that are willing to be challenged, hearts that are willing to be convicted, hearts that are willing to move however you would guide us and however you would direct us and lead us this morning, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Uh, last February, a, a show premiered on uh, CBS titled uh, Undercover Boss. I don't know if you guys caught the premiere episode of it. It followed the Super Bowl last February. Um, and uh, for Marcy and I, we were hanging out with Tyler and Sarah and watching four hours of football. And so our TV-induced coma went one more hour, uh, just like about 38.6 million other people who watched the premiere episode of that show, Undercover Boss. In fact, that premiere episode actually had the largest TV audience to watch a premiere of a new series for the last 20 years, all right? It had 38.6 million people who tuned into it, all right? 
I think in many regards that people tuned in because it was right after the Super Bowl and you really don't want to do anything else than maybe just watch a little bit more TV, right? Um, but even, even that, I think really what caught a lot of people, especially in the first five minutes, was the premise of the show. The premise of the show is essentially this. You had top-level CEO executives of a lot of American corporations who for a week were going to spend their work days not in their cushy corporate offices and corner offices with windows, but willing to step down into the shoes and into the role and into the job status of a lot of just hourly-based employees at the bottom of their corporate executive ladder, so to speak. All right? And so for a week, and for each episode, what you had was the CEO who had stepped down and was going to work in a normal day kind of deal. And so the premiere episode had a guy named Larry. O'Donnell. He was a corporate executive CEO of Waste Management, which is the company that in a lot of big cities gets your trash taken out, oversees sewer, oversees all those kinds of things. All right, And so for a week, this guy rode trash trucks, he emptied porta-potties, and he recycled and sorted trash at dump sites. All right, So this CEO executive for a week did that. All right, And so as we watched, what was fascinating about that episode and a lot of the other episodes that would follow along is a lot of these CEO executives really struggled. And there were a few times and a few episodes even in which these executives almost got fired on the very day in which they started, all right? These guys had a really hard time in a normal day job. And I think the show really kind of caught on, especially that night, because it was in a day and in time, culturally speaking, in which the economy, just like still today, was in recession. And not just that the economy was in recession, but there was a growing distrust in corporate-level executives who many, many were feeling like they didn't understand the nature and the plight of the common worker. It was a day in which government was bailing out corporations in which CEO executives were receiving bonuses from those bailouts. And so there was a growing distrust in the mass general public, so to speak, in which case many felt like these executives didn't understand their common-day employees, didn't understand their products, and didn't understand the needs and the desires of consumers. And so this show kind of came in like a little bit of a breath of fresh air as these CEO executives left their cushy offices, stepped down into an hourly job, punched a time clock, and did a normal day job. And really, as came to watch through this thing, what was really fascinating as people watched these executives do this as they kind of walked through this deal was that many people's respect for these executives that was already high only elevated all the more. <laughs> By these guys' willingness to step down out of their cushiness, out of their glories, and step down into a humble job in a humble spot for a week, these executives, as they kind of understood their workers, understood their products even better, were even more elevated in their respect by their employees and by the mass public in general. It was a really interesting social experiment as you kind of watched it. Really what we're going to see this morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 2 is that Jesus Christ is going to leave his cushy offices in heaven, so to speak, in the corner offices. He's going to step down into the, and take on the form and the nature of humanity. Really, the, the our argument of the book of Hebrews is going to take a dramatic shift here as we look at chapter 2, verse 5 and on. If you guys have been with us and following along, what we've seen so far is that the writer of Hebrews has been comparing Jesus to the angels. And he said that Jesus is superior to the angels for a whole bunch of reasons, but essentially what he was arguing was Jesus is superior to the angels because Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who will receive all worship. Jesus is the one who will reign over a kingdom that's coming one day that's not yet here. And because of his reign to come and because of the fact that all will worship him one day, because of that, he is supreme over the angels. The angels are not rivals to him. In fact, that argument is going to continue on that the writer of Hebrews is going to say even further this morning that the, uh, Jesus Christ is superior to angels, but he's going to make a different turn and come at the argument in a whole different means. And it's going to be much like kind of undercover boss idea that, that Jesus is going to be supreme to the angels now, not because he's deity, but because he's going to come in humility and he's going to be able to do something that the angels could not do. So the writer of the, uh, Hebrews is going to make a dramatic turn of the argument, moving from Jesus' deity to Jesus' humanity. In any regards, I think what the writer of Hebrews does for us in these two chapters is he corrects where you and I often fail in our view of Jesus Christ. 
I think for a lot of us, especially I think in a college setting, you and I feel like Jesus is a guy we can identify with. Uh, you guys may have run across these kinds of marketing before, but uh, you guys may have run across this. Jesus is my homeboy, all right? Uh, a lot of us have this idea, hey man, Jesus and I, we tight, right? You know, Jesus and I, were close. Jesus and I, we hang. You know, I, I'm familiar with Jesus. I'm comfortable with Jesus. Uh, or we get uh, images like this, Jesus with a heart that bleeds, I don't know, blue, white, uh, red, white, and blue, American spirit, American pride, right? This idea that Jesus is in our image. Jesus identifies with us. Uh, I was kind of even surfing the web this uh, week and found, you can find Jesus action figures, all right? You can have Jesus playing golf. You can have Jesus in a suit as an executive. You can have Jesus playing hockey with the kids, all right? Jesus can fit into any realm that you and I live in because for many of us, we think, hey, Jesus identifies with us. And for some of us, we got to realize, no, no, even as he identifies with us, though, he's still other than us. He's still God. So chapter 1 says, hey, respect him who will reign one day and respect him who will receive worship one day. But for some of us, we, we got that nailed down. We realized that Jesus is God. But for many of us, we have a hard time identifying with Jesus. He was perfect. He lived perfectly. He was God in the flesh. He was God. He set apart. He's so other than us that I, I'm scared to approach him. I don't know how to consider him. Chapter 2 kind of comes in this morning and kind of balances that out for you and I. If he seems so far and so distant, so hard to approach, chapter 2 comes in and says, No, you got to understand Jesus took upon the form of human nature so that he could identify with you and I. He is God, but he is also man. He's the one and only God-man. And in the midst of the argument of his humanity and his humility, we're going to see the writer of Hebrews argue even further that he's superior to angels and he's supreme overall. Not just because he's God, but because he even took on human nature. So look with me, if you will, kind of in the argument. Chapter 2, verse 5. What we're going to notice as we kind of jump off here is that there's going to be a little bit of irony. Chapter 2, verse 5. The writer says, For the Father did not subject angels to the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying. Uh, for all those of you who know your Bible but aren't exactly sure from where uh, a verse comes from, this, this is the writer for you. All right? He says, hey, I know it's written somewhere. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure where it is, but I'm sure it says somewhere, all right? And so he goes, hey, what he's going to do is he's going to quote from Psalm 8, and this is what he quotes. He says, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned man with glory and honor, and you've appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. What Psalm 8 is saying, and when the psalmist first wrote it, was speaking in regard to humanity out and large, all right? In many ways, he pulls a lot of the text from Genesis 2 in which man was made in the image of God. Why was man made in the image of God? What does it mean that man has been made in the image of God? Essentially, what it means is kind of what you find there in verse 7. He says that you've been crowned with glory and honor. What it means that you and I are in the image of God is not that you and I share some characteristics with God that are different than the animals. What it means that you and I are in the image of God is that we have been crowned with glory and honor in a way that's unique and set apart from all of creation. And the result of that is that you and I can reign and have been put in charge over all of the earth. That was what God intended. That was humanity's destiny. But the problem was humanity fell. Right? And so what the writer of Hebrews is here going to do is refer and place Jesus Christ in the context here of Psalm 8 and say that Psalm 8 is now being fulfilled and is talking about Jesus Christ. That it is Jesus Christ who has been crowned with glory and honor. It is Jesus Christ who is going to rule over all that's been created because something went wrong. You guys remember back in Genesis 2. God creates humanity in His image and He charges Him to rule over the face of the earth, but humanity falls into sin, and so now humanity no longer can represent and rule on behalf of God. Humanity's thwarted, humanity's tanked, humanity's tainted. Humanity can no longer fulfill what God has called it to fulfill. 
In fact, I want you guys to flip back to Genesis 3 real quick. Keep your finger in Hebrews chapter uh, 2. I kind of thought about this this morning, even as we were worshiping. Uh, really, the, the irony, what you're going to see in Hebrews 2, is that Jesus Christ is going to do what no one else could. But Jesus Christ is going to have to do something that maybe wasn't what you at first intended. God creates humanity, tells humanity to rule over the face of the earth. Humanity falls. Humanity and God's relationship is broken. And I want you guys to kind of look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'm going to read it to you. After God curses, Satan curses the serpent, tells him he's going to have to crawl for the rest of his life. Then he comes and he, and he provides a prophecy to the serpent. He says this. To the serpent, he says, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Genesis 3.15 is a really fascinating text and it's kind of abstract. We usually don't kind of come to it very often. But really, in the heel of the fall, and the aftermath of the fall, is, is we find out all about the curses and all of what's happened to humanity and God and the serpent. What we find in Genesis 3.15 is how God is going to fix it. If you'll notice, he says what's going to happen from here on out is there's going to be hostility between humanity and the serpent. And from the seed and from those who come forth from these genetic lines, from humanity's line, and even from the serpent, what's going to end up happening is there's going to be a war. And one from the seed of Satan is going to uh, deal a blow to the heel of one from the seed of woman. But one from the seed of woman is going to deal a death blow on the head of the seed of serpent. I want you guys get a picture here. Is there's going to be one who's going to come forth who's going to actually deal a blow on the heel to the one who's going to come forth from humanity. In many regards, the one that's being pictured here is Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy of one who's going to come. And what you get a picture here is one's going to come forth from humanity that certain Satan is going to deal a blow to the Achilles heel, so to speak. It's going to be a crippling blow, but it won't be a fatal blow because that same one who gets the blow to the heel is going to deal a fatal blow to the head of Satan. But what you notice is it has to be one from the seed of woman who will do it. But what's just happened to all of humanity in Genesis 3? All of humanity has fallen into sin, so none of humanity can represent and rule on behalf of God, and so none of humanity can fulfill what God just promised in Genesis 3.15. And so Genesis 3.15 actually becomes your first test case, your first clue that one is going to come forth from humanity that's not just going to be man. Genesis 3.15 actually tells you that there's going to be one who's going to have to one day be man, but also be God. God is going to have to take on human nature because it's the only way that God can fulfill His plan as He's promised it. None of humanity can do to Satan what He's promised unless God takes on human flesh and as a man does to Satan what He's just promised here. And so Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2 kind of becomes the explanation out of Genesis 3.15 in the aftermath of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. So kind of flip back with me. Here's the irony. So man was created to, to rule on behalf of God and yet man can't. So God comes in the form of humanity. Jesus Christ takes on flesh and he's going to live and fulfill what God had destined for humanity. And yet the problem is, verse 8, you've put all things in subjection under his feet. That's going to be the destiny that Christ has received. That's what we talked about even the last two weeks, that Christ will one day rule over all things. And yet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So the irony here as you move to chapter 2 is that him who will have rule over all of creation does not yet have it. If you and I were to look in our world, if you and I are looking at what's going on, you and I don't see and don't have proof that one day Jesus Christ is returning and he's going to reign over all of creation. And so the irony becomes what you and I do see of Jesus Christ as he comes, as he comes in absolute humility. 
He doesn't come with reigning and He doesn't come with power. You look at His birth, how does He come? He comes in humility. He comes in a manger, in a stable, because there's no room in the inn. He doesn't come as royalty comes. He comes as a peasant and as a beggar comes. And then He lives and He dies at the hands of Romans who crucify Him. Why? Because what's fascinating in the irony of it is that the Jews in Israel felt that he was the one who was going to remove the reign and the rule of the Romans over them. And so when he dies, it's so ironic because that's not what they expected. His apostles and his disciples scatter because they're so confused as to what's going on. And then he resurrects. They're utterly astonished and he shows back up to them and yet he leaves them. <laughs> and, he, and he leaves them and he doesn't establish his kingdom that he's promised. And so the disciples are again sitting there disoriented going, what's going on? In his birth, in his life, in his death, and even in his absence, he comes in humility and not in power. So the great irony here is this kind of argument about Jesus Christ shifts in Hebrews 2 is that he's not the one who looks like he's reigning in power as deity, but right now, really what we see is that he came in humility as he took on human flesh. So why did he do it? Why did he take on human flesh? What was the purpose? What you're going to see here as we kind of move next is uh, he's going to come in human flesh so that he can identify with us, all right? Look with me in verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Uh, What the writer here is saying is that Jesus Christ, in a sense, shares our nature with us, all right? That when he took on human nature, he now can identify with us because he shares our nature. In fact, he goes on, he quotes these Old Testament quotes, and what he's trying to say is that he can identify with us, he shares in our brotherhood, and we share in our nature. Look at verse 12. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Notice he's saying over and over again, hey, I am just like the children, just like the humanity that's been created. I share in their nature. He goes on even more explicitly, verse 14, just the first half of it. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus Christ himself, likewise also partook of the same. Look with me at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Notice, Jesus Christ took on flesh and blood. He shares in the entirety of our nature. He's not just, as chapter 1 verse 3 says, in the representation and the exact nature of the Father as God, but He also shares in the flesh and blood and He shares in you and I's nature because He can identify with us. The passage will go on further and say He'll also share our experience. He shares an experience of death. He shares an experience of life. He shares an experience of suffering and even of temptation. But why does He do it? Why does he move so as to identify with us? Why all this rigmarole? What's he trying to accomplish? Um, some of you guys might have heard this illustration before. I'm kind of stealing this from Matt Morton. It's one of his favorites, but it's a good one, all right? Uh, you guys might have heard about a, a show in 2007 that the National Geographic Channel did called The Man Among Wolves, all right? This is a guy named Sean Ellis, all right? Uh, this guy ran across on the street three little wolf puppies one day, all right? And something moved him to adopt these three little precious wolf puppies that would grow up to be not so precious. Um, and as they grew up, he realized that they needed to live in the wild, and so he decided to leave his cubicle job, leave his life, leave his home, and go live with the wolves. So this guy, for the next few years, basically lives amongst these wolves, all right? He sleeps with them, he eats with them. In fact, the show will document that he puts his food in a little baggie in a dead animal carcass and eats right out of the dead carcass along with the wolves, all right? This guy spares no extent in his willingness to identify and live amongst the wolves. Uh, I'm going to see some weird faces and some dropped jaws, all right? Kind of freaky, right? Why does he do all this? Why does he go to this extent and why does he want to identify so much with wolves? In fact, 
the documentary will kind of even explain that now when he kind of comes and leaves the pack of wolves, he tries to come back into human society, but feels awkward socially. He doesn't know how to talk. He doesn't know how to talk about football. I don't know. You know, he's kind of awkward in that setting, all right? He, he's so identified with wolves that he's kind of got his whole identity wrapped there, all right? But why does he do it? The documentary kind of showed that, that he wanted to just aid scientists and researchers in providing them better intel, better reconnaissance information on how wolves live, how they sleep, how they eat, how they travel. He does all of this and leaves in the entirety of his life so as to help scientists have a little bit more information. Not to parallel this weird, crazy psycho dude with Jesus Christ, but here we go, all right? Uh, Jesus Christ is going to leave his life. He's going to leave the heavens. He's going to leave the glories. And he's going to come, take on human nature to live amongst us. Why does he identify? Why does he go to so far and extreme to identify with us? All right, I don't think he's just trying to provide better intel and better reconnaissance information back to the Father about us. The Father created us. I think he has a better sense of who we are and how we live and how we sleep. In fact, he's also sovereign. He knows all things, so that kind of helps him. So, why does he do it? I think the difference here between Jesus Christ and Sean Ellis is that he's going to do it so as to not just identify, but he's going to do it also so as to intervene. Really, the point of the passage isn't just to say that Jesus is your homeboy, that he understands you, that he loves you. What you're going to see here as we kind of move through is that Jesus comes and he identifies with us so that he can intervene on our behalf. Uh, Look with me, if you will, back... Uh, kind of verse 9, what you're going to see is his intervention kind of has two movements. The first element of, of that movement is that it's going to be a move to rescue us. Back to verse 9. I want you guys to notice his identification with us. Why does he do it? What's he trying to accomplish? What's the fruit of it? Verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. He comes in humility. He takes on human nature. And therefore, he's lower than the angels. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Why does he take on human nature? Why does he identify with us? Point one is he's going to rescue us from death. What does he want to do for us? Is He wants to rescue us from death. Uh, as we look at the garden, we look at what happened in Genesis 3, the reality is you and I all experience death. You and I will all experience death, but the question is what becomes of us after death? The writer of Hebrews will say that Jesus Christ tastes death for us so that we don't have to be held by death after the grave. The hope and the confidence we have after the grave is because Jesus Christ tasted death for us. Not like a little sip and see, not like a little, little foretaste or a little cracker. He swallowed it whole, took it completely and entirely, but was not held by it. And so he rescues us from death, but not just that. Look with me, verse 14, he goes further. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Second thing that he rescues us from is not just death, but also the devil. He identifies with us so as to intervene on our behalf and to rescue us from the power and the grip of the devil himself. Can you and I fight the devil by ourselves? Absolutely not. Is there spiritual warfare that exists? Absolutely. Do you and I have in our faculties and our abilities to resist it and to fight it? No. So Jesus Christ identifies on our behalf and intervenes for us so that he cannot rule us and rule over us. Jesus Christ stands in the gap, stands in between. Even more so, verse 15 And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. What does Jesus Christ rescue us from? Not just death, not just the devil, but even fear and even bondage. You and I don't have to live in fear of things. We don't have to live in fear of death in particular. We don't have to live and and live the entirety of our lives in bondage to fear and in fear of what we cannot control because Jesus Christ controls everything. And the reason why he is supreme is not just because he's God, but because he took on human nature and he died on our behalf. But it goes even further. Look with me verse 16. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Particularly speaking of humanity, what's the help he gave? He's not going to move to redeem angels. He's going to move to redeem humanity. 
And so he goes on further, verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What's the writer of Hebrews saying in verse 17? Propitiation, humongous theological word, all right? What in the world does it mean? You don't use it around the coffee table or at lunch table, right? Propitiation simply means this. It means the expunging or the wiping or the satisfying of God's wrath. Here's what Jesus Christ does on our behalf. He takes on human nature so that he can satisfy the wrath of God. If he does not take on human nature, the wrath of God cannot be satisfied unless we experience it. (laughs) The only way that, that the wrath of God can be satisfied without us experiencing it personally is if Jesus Christ takes on human nature and receives the penalty and the payment of God's wrath. And that's what he does on our behalf. So he intervenes as a priest. He stands between us and God. Because the penalty of our sin removed us from a relationship with him and brought the wrath of God upon ourselves. But Jesus Christ takes upon himself human nature so that he can take that wrath of God upon himself. Genesis 3.15 is going to say the only way God will fulfill his plan in the future. And the only way that you and I will get our, our lives fixed and redeemed is if someone will come who is in the nature of God but will take on human nature. Because the only way that the wrath of God can be settled is if it's shed and poured out upon mankind. If it's not poured out on humanity, then God is not just. But the character, characteristic of God's character is that he is holy and he's just. And a judge who does not exact a punishment is not one who's just. And so it gets exacted, though, on Jesus Christ so that we don't have to receive it. And he doesn't just remove the penalty of sin's consequences. And he doesn't just remove bondage and fear and death and the devil. But he does one more thing for us. Verse 18. For since he himself is tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The last thing that he rescues us from is temptation. (laughs) Not only does he remove the penalty of sin from us, but he's going to rescue us even from him who is the tempter. Because he identified and he shared in our nature and he shared in our experience, and so he's not one who doesn't understand and he's not one who doesn't sympathize. But he comes near and he identifies with us so as to rescue us. But he doesn't just leave us rescued. He also moves to restore us. Fascinating thing in verse 10 is, notice with me again, he says, For it was fitting for him... For whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. Notice in chapter 2, verse 7, he said that humanity in Psalm 8 was crowned with glory. The reality was because of the fall, that crown and that glory has been defaced but not erased. (laughs) Humanity now does not appropriately resemble and represent the glory of God. And so what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf by taking on human nature and identifying with us is that he's not just moved to rescue us, but he's moving also to restore us back into the destiny and the picture and the portrait of what God had from the very beginning. God's desire for your lives is not just to get your sins wiped out and get you with a clean debt. He's not just wanting to wipe away the penalty of your sin, but he's wanting to move you and restore you and reshape you back into the image of what he meant for you to be look like from the very beginning in the garden. And so if you notice in verse 10, he says, bringing many sons to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 will talk about that you and I are being transformed from glory to glory back into the same image of Jesus Christ. What Jesus Christ is doing for those of us who have trusted in Him and have received the forgiveness of sins is that He's moving right now in our lives to restore and to recreate and transform us more and more back into the pattern and the image of what He meant for us to look like and what He meant life to look like for us. And it's a slow process at times. And yet Jesus Christ does all this on our behalf. He comes near He leaves the glories of heaven. He takes on human nature so as not just to identify so that we can understand him, but he identifies with us so that he can intervene and rescue us and restore us. In fact, I think in many regards, it's not just a nature. It's not just a truth about salvation. I think it's a great model of what ministry and what he's called you and I and how you and I are to live. 
I think one of the things I think about as you look through this is that Jesus Christ is going to move out of what in some level was comfortable. He's going to go into a different context to identify with the people that he's going to look to redeem and restore them. In many regards, I think you get a picture of what ministry is to look like and what God has called you and I to. You and I, in this place and in our places that we live, in the worlds that we live, we can stick in our worlds and stick in what's comfortable. But one of the things I want to do is I want to challenge you guys to begin to think about moving out of your comfort zone and moving into new worlds, those worlds that are not yours, to identify with an audience that's not like you so as to redeem and restore them. Uh, one of my best friends is going to come up here in, in a few minutes. Ryan, if you going to start coming up. Ryan's going to talk a little bit to you guys about kind of uh, inner city youth ministry that he oversees here at our, our church, uh, known as Youth Impact. I don't know if you guys are a part of it. Uh, Ryan also kind of oversees uh, all of our community outreach ministry. And, and I think for many regards, a lot of the reputation Grace has as a church in this community, I think in many regards, a lot of y'all have no clue some of the things that we're involved in and some of the things that are happening here as our body moves out. And one of the things I want you guys to kind of hear too as Ryan comes up is ultimately what Jesus Christ is going to do is not a one-time deal. That when you and I see Jesus Christ in heaven, when we see him for all of eternity, for all of eternity, he will be the God-man. He didn't step out of the glories of heaven and just then step back into them, but he's going to be changed forevermore. In many regards, I think for you and I, as we think about community outreach or we think about serving the poor, it's often seen as a service project. Let me go one weekend, check a box, wipe my conscience clean. And yet what Jesus Christ shows is that one who steps into another world stays in that world and never leaves it. It takes on a new paradigm and a new lifestyle. And I want Ryan to kind of give you guys a sense of kind of, kind of what he oversees and some opportunities you guys have to get involved. And I, and I think uh, just even, even this week, Ryan kind of shared with our elders this, uh, this past week kind of about a lot of the things that we as a church are a part of. And it was just uh, it was awesome to see our elders blown away because even they had no clue a lot of things that were going on that Ryan gets to oversee and gets to invite you guys into to be a part of. And so I want you guys to kind of hear a little bit from Ryan and kind of challenge us to kind of our involvement. And then I'll come up and close this out. Thanks, Trey. Um, I'm also Trey's boss, so um, I get to boss him around. That's not even close to true. Okay. Um, well, uh, yeah, as Trey said, my name is, uh, my name is Ryan Pale. I do a ministry called Youth Impact. Um, I don't know if any of y'all um, have heard of it, about it. But hopefully, we'll get to uh, share a little bit more about it here pretty soon. Uh, I want to say, uh, actually, before we, before we really get into it, I want to um, ask y'all a couple questions. And um, go ahead and raise your hand uh, if, you, uh, if, if you can answer yes to this. Okay. How many of you in here, most of us are college students, how many of you in here can pinpoint the exact time that you said, I'm going to college? Anybody? Okay. That, that's cool. That's what I expected. Okay. So um, let me see. So is it safe to say for most of us that it was always kind of an assumed value in your home, in your school, on your sports teams, in your surroundings? It was always an assumed value that you were going to go to college. You're going to be bumped up to the next level academically. Is that, is that fair to say? Cool. Okay. Yeah. I, I would also say uh, maybe whether it's uh, maybe even our, our religious bent or even our political bent, most of the times are shaped, are formed because of the people that were around us. Simply by living their lives around us, our, our value system and our culture was shaped. Um, so I, I would ask you if you vote the same direction as your parents, but um, I'm guessing it would be very tempting to lie because we don't want to be like our parents, I know. Um, but uh, but that's, that's, how, uh, that's how our lives are shaped, by people, have lived their, people that have lived their lives around us. So the, the reason I bring that up is because um, uh, I guess I just want to pose the question, who, who are you influencing? Who, who um, is it in your life that your values, that your cultures are, are being translated into another person? 
You know, I, I would say as the salt and light of the earth, which you and I are called to be, we're, we're called to go, as, as Trey said, into a, into a culture, into a ministry that seeks to transform not only spiritually, but also socially, economically, emotionally. One of the things that I have the privilege to do is, uh, like you said, being a part of a, a ministry called Youth Impact. Essentially what we do is we work with kindergarten through, through uh, high schoolers. Five years old to 18 years old, uh, we have college students uh, that go in. Most of our college students are middle, uh, upper middle class um, white students, and we work with a lower income black students. And, um, and it is a phenomenal thing where at first we see, wow, there's differences, and I can't relate to that person uh, as, they, as they live life, as they continue to live life with one another. They see that, man, there's some, there's some real um, relationship possibilities that happen here. There's some real life change that happens so one of the things that I like to do is just to, to challenge you guys. Who are you, who are you influencing? Who, who's somebody that doesn't look like you, that doesn't have the same values? Who, who's somebody, whose world are you in that, that, that's like that? Um, one of the things I would, I would challenge you guys, uh, Free Youth Impact, I know we, um, we've, we, we've closed down you know, uh, the opportunity for people to, to get involved for this semester. But one thing you may want to consider even in the spring, joining Youth Impact and checking it out. But in, other, in the meantime, uh, you don't have to wait for that. One of the things I think we do a lot of times is wait for a ministry to open up and then, and then climb on board with that. But you, as you sit in your chair, be thinking about ways that you could get involved in influencing others, helping to redeem and restore them. You know, one of the things that a lot of people that do small groups, they, um, they come to me and they're like, Ryan, can you, do it? Can you organize a service, uh, a service project for me for my small group? And um, I want to throw my shoe at them because service project is not, it, it's, it's not in the scriptures. It's not what we're called to at all. And if you have the mentality that you're looking for a service project, that service project is about you and it's not about the benefit of the community. What I'd like to hear is uh, for you guys to come to me and say, hey, Ryan, we want to love people in our community. Can you, pl- can you please help us do that? And my response to you is always going to be, number one, listen to prayer requests. So if you're sitting in a small group and, and, and one, of your, uh, one of the people in your small group, maybe they, um, they're going through a hard time, maybe they, maybe they failed a, a test, or maybe uh, their parents are, um, are struggling with cancer, or they have one of their best friends back home is struggling with something, hear those prayer requests and, and seek to love and serve on them. Get your group together and take a, meal to, take a meal to somebody that's in your small group and love on them, share the love of Christ with them in order to redeem or restore them. Another thing that you can do, um, is come to me and, and say, hey, what are some ministries that, that, uh, that we participate with? Um, and I've got a long list of them. There's a lot of great things going on in the Bryan College Station community, and they need help, and they need volunteers. So please come. Uh, afterwards, we're going uh, to have lunch um, right after this. And so um, if you're interested in finding out a little bit more about what Grace is doing in the community, please come and see me. I'll stick around for a little bit. But, uh, and Trace can come up and pray some. I think for a lot of us, this idea of Jesus' incarnation is not that novel of an idea. And so one of the things I want to do is, as we kind of wrapped up this morning was kind of take you guys in a bit of a different direction and, and ask, in, in many ways, are you guys living in an incarnational way? Are you guys moving out of your comfort zones, out of the, the spheres of people just like you, and into some fears of people who are needing to be rescued? Uh, in many regards, I think sometimes Bible churches in particular can get a reputation of being so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. And what I love about the incarnation of Christ is that he comes and he comes to identify not just so as to remove spiritual realities and spiritual oppression, but he comes also to begin to reshape and restore us. And so I'd love to challenge you guys, are you in places and are you in environments where you're looking to identify with some people that aren't just like you? And and as you do that, are you looking just to convince them of truth? Are you looking to restore it and help be a part of seeing their lives reshaped and refashioned? And are you looking to be there for a one-time event? Are you looking to be there for a lifetime and begin to walk with them slowly but surely as their lives, as their worldview are changed? 
You know, I think in many regards, you look at the incarnation of Christ, you get those two pictures wedded together of a movement to identify, but of movement not just to identify, just to have information, but a movement to identify so as to intervene in the reality of that's in front of them, in front of them. And that intervention comes not just to be about truth and about a bunch of ideas, but also about changing and fixing life and restoring it in a slow, life-on-life kind of process. And that's kind of one of the things we want to challenge you guys to kind of consider. And if you guys are in small groups or if you guys are in organizations, hey, where are you making an impact even here in our community? And are you doing it just as a one-time deal? Are you looking for ways to really get involved in the lives of some people, not just to give them a meal that's a short-term need, but but looking to fix their long-term needs as they move forward, shaping their worldview, shaping who they are and how they view themselves. And so that's kind of our heart. We're going to have lunch here in a minute. It's going to pray for us. But if you guys have some more questions, Ryan would love to kind of help answer questions on some of the organizations that we're part of, from uh, pregnancy clinics to food pantry kinds of things to uh, helping feed the homeless and, and just, I mean, all kinds of different kind of gamut. And so I'd love to help you guys have a sense of what you can get involved in. So he'd love to kind of chat with you. But let me pray for us and then we'll talk about lunch here. Father God, I give you great thanks um, that your son would leave the glories of heaven and he'd come and he'd take on human nature, uh, doing uh, and standing in a place that none other could so that we would face a reality that we couldn't face apart from his, his intervention. Uh, and Father, so we give you great thanks for that which he's provided on our behalf. That we can have confidence after death, that we can have confidence in a relationship with you that's eternally secure, that comes absolutely freely and unconditionally. And Father, I thank you as well for the model of what it looks like for one who would come and who would step into another world to not just remove and to fix the spiritual realities of life, but then to reshape and refashion and bring restoration. Father, I pray that we would be those kinds of people in this community. Those that would be proclaimers of truth, but those who would also be looking to refashion and reshape realities of people's lives. Father, I pray that you would allow us to be salt and light in this community and in this campus. And I pray that you would use us in significant ways and stretch us in where we'd step, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.